You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. One of the main pillars of the Protestant Reformation was salvation by grace alone, sola gratia in the Latin. But in the Arminian theological approach, named after Jacob Arminius during the time of the Protestant Reformation, is salvation really by grace alone? How can God get all the credit for salvation when anyone who is finally saved is only saved because they were able to make a decision to have faith that grace did not effectively predispose them towards or guarantee would ever happen? If something has to be added to grace to get to salvation, then no matter how small that addition to grace is, doesn't that tiny addition have huge consequences if without that addition to grace a person ends up doomed for eternity? And if all grace can lead us to is placing us in a position where we make the final decision, and if in that decision the scales are perfectly balanced so that we are put in a position of libertarian free will, where we are just as much at liberty to resist salvation as to accept salvation, then what is the final determining force behind that decision? Chance? Random choice? If grace makes us totally neutral and then asks us to make the most important decision we will ever make, then where does the impetus for this decision even arise? However, even in the face of these and other objections, Arminian theologians argue forcefully that they do, in fact, believe salvation is by grace alone. Well-known Arminian theologian Roger Olson puts it this way, quote, One of the most damaging misconceptions about Arminianism is that it is not truly Protestant. Critics say it is not a Reformation theology, but is closer to Catholic soteriology. The claim is that Arminius and his followers defected from the article by which, according to Luther, the Christian faith stands or falls. Salvation is a free gift of grace received by faith alone, and subtly reintroduced salvation by works of righteousness." Arminian theologians like Olson argue that they are truly Protestant because they do believe grace alone saves, in the sense that grace brings us the completed salvation event accomplished in Christ. Human decision can't add or subtract from what Christ accomplished on the cross. So in the Arminians' view, they affirm the 100% completeness of the salvation on offer through Christ. They then deny that our response to this salvation subtracts from its completeness in any way. Arminians characterize our response to Christ as merely instrumental in salvation. Therefore, our response to accept Christ is not meritorious. In other words, our response to God's grace is of absolutely no credit to ourselves and of no subtraction from God's grace. In classic Arminian thought, God gives provenient or preceding grace to each person to overcome their fallen nature so that each person is elevated by grace to a state of libertarian free will from which they can respond in faith if they so choose. It's a free will decision to accept or reject having faith in Christ as they see it. The decision is all up to us. If we choose to have faith, then, as they see it, we've been saved by grace alone. But if we decide not to have faith, we damn ourselves for rejecting the grace alone, which could have saved us if we'd only chosen to accept it through faith. So if one is saved, it's only because they were able to accept a salvation they could have never earned, 
and in an act of non-forced free will, they merely accepted it in faith rather than rejecting it. And so as Arminian theologians see it, grace alone saved you and you just accepted the free gift and the decision that was aided and made possible by grace, but which you equally could have resisted if you wanted to. God puts you in a perfectly neutral position. You are not predisposed in one way or the other, else the choice would not be a free one as they understand freedom from a libertarian point of view. So in an Arminian theology, where salvation is completed only by a human decision, which may or may not occur, there exists a way of describing how God supposedly saves us by grace alone with the fairly enormous caveat that we are the ones who have to decide to receive it by being able to use our non-predetermined libertarian free will so that from a neutral position we make the decision to ultimately be saved. But why is all of this so important to me? One might ask, what is the harm done if Arminian theologian wants to claim simultaneously that all will not be saved in the end, while at the same time also affirming that God wants all to be saved, that salvation is by grace alone, that God gives equal grace to all, and that God is all good? What's the big deal if an Arminian theologian wants to believe that they can simultaneously affirm, without any internal conflict, that grace alone saves, that grace goes to all, and yet that all will not be saved? Well, part of the reason that all of this is relevant to me is because one of the arguments in my book, Grace Saves All, is precisely that if one affirms that salvation is by grace alone and that grace goes to all, then the logical conclusion from this would be that all will be saved in the end. And since a large portion of my book is about the topic of grace, then it would be fair to say that I have taken a strong position about grace and what grace entails. I want to affirm as strongly as I can not only the total power of grace to actually save, but also God's universal extension of grace to all. So this leads me to challenge Arminian theology because it claims that salvation is by grace alone, but then subtly undermines the power of grace to actually save people, to actually bring them all the way home to God. I believe grace actually does save people, and that grace actually does go to all, and that grace actually does bring us all the way home to God. And another reason I'm so invested in this is because I'm concerned about those millions of spiritually traumatized people out there who are believing that God has given them all the grace that God can give them. And then many of these same people are extremely anxious about their ultimate salvation to the point of having mental and spiritual breakdowns because they are wondering how they can ever really know if their belief and trust in God will be strong enough to actually save them in the end at Judgment Day. They have enduring anxiety about whether or not Jesus will reject them because they were lukewarm and their faith wasn't strong enough to pass muster. Because if grace alone can't actually save us, then what can? Something in us beyond God's reach that may or may not be able to produce enough faith and sustain it over the course of a lifetime? I know that all of this is a lot to process, which is why I'm so very pleased to have help with us today in the form of our friend Jonathan Mitchell. Jonathan is a lifelong translator of the New Testament from the original Greek. Find out more about Jonathan's translation of the New Testament, as well as his many commentaries at jonathanmitchellnewtestament.com. Welcome, Jonathan Mitchell, back to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. I'm very honored to be here again, and it will be a joy to have this discussion with you and go over some of the questions that you have raised uh, that we can just discuss and take a look at. So, Well, I, I kind of want to apologize for that super long introduction, but 
I sort of wanted to get some of the issues out on the table um, before we got into the conversation. And you and I have both put a lot of thought into um, into uh, what we wanted to say on this podcast. So I think both of us may be talking in fairly extended segments here. And I'll just ask the listeners to kind of, uh, I don't know, sit back and relax and kind of bear with us as we just try to um, go through go through this because this relationship between um, uh, grace and law and how that works has been a uh, just a big uh, question throughout the history of Christianity. So really, this is an enormous uh, conversation for us to try to to take on. Would you agree? I would agree. And actually, thank you for so well laying out the situation for our listeners to be able to know. Okay, what are we getting into here? You do. Yeah. I, you covered that very well, so I'm glad you did. All right. Well, thank you. All right. So I just have some questions to kind of help focus us as we as we move uh, through all of this. And the first question I've got, which I'll put to you, and then I'll let you talk about it, then I'll share some of my thoughts. First question is, even though Arminian-influenced theologians want to claim that they believe in salvation by grace alone, can they really can they really successfully make this case? David, I don't think so, at least not as I read the Greek texts uh, of the New Testament. Uh, but let's unpack this a little bit. Recently, a brother in Christ responded to me on this topic, and briefly he said this, I'll, just as an example of those who object to um, have the, the Arminian view, I should say. Okay. And he, quote, he said, I see Abraham in Genesis 15 choosing to believe what God was telling him about his offspring. And by his choice to believe, God counted it as righteousness for Abraham. We learned that in Romans 4 about the righteousness being counted to Abram. The topic wasn't directly about eternal life, but about Abram having errors. By these simple choices, which I don't consider to be works, the relation with God was altered by God himself. Of course, no one can come to him unless God draws him. A common analogy of a condemned criminal choosing to accept the pardon uh, is one example of, uh, although I can never imagine that actually being the case of someone, but this, this, these are some of the arguments that are brought up. Mm -hmm. I don't see work involved in that kind of choice, accepting a free gift. Romans 3.11 says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And that's interesting. If we stop right there and say, no one understands, how then can, without grace coming in and giving something to us to understand, how could we make a choice? <clears throat> no one seeks for God. And that right there, um, it shows so to me very uh, clearly that God has to come after us like God has to go after in the parable of the lost sheep. Mm -hmm. The sheep was unable to do anything as far as uh, the shepherd had to go, pick him up on his shoulder and take him back. So, so he goes on to say, 
this can still be true about me while I accept his payment on the cross for my sin. I wasn't seeking him. He sought me, and I chose to trust. So you, you know, see, just if I can just say something that's interesting, just that that that, that quote that you have that right there from a very sincere person just yes. underscores the difficulty that you get into when you try to start talking about this because he quoted a verse kind of in support of his of his position which seems to actually go against it exactly um, <laughs> uh, so this does this is you know i do want to have sympathy for anybody that tries yes. to get into this discussion Absolutely. because this discussion has humbled people uh, down through the centuries but continue on with the yeah. problem you see with the armenian theology okay well the problem which i see with armenian theology is that it insists that there is still something that we need to do despite all that christ has done and the spirit has done and that little thing of that there's something we need to do we need to accept the gift we need to ask the lord to come into our heart we need to do something and uh, this is where, uh, it, with really looking looking at that position, I think this is where Arminian theology really falls short of the grace of God. Uh, <clears throat> we must respond by acceptance or belief or confession is what they say. Now, I think that it is important to ask why Abraham believed in this in this example that this brother brought up. Well. Was it a choice, uh, or was there another reason why Abraham believed? Did he just choose to believe? Well, here's where I see Abraham as believing because he had heard the word of the Lord uh, spoken to him, which planted faith and trust within him. Uh, I see our response to Christ as a result of faith and belief. But we do not uh, decide to believe. We just do. Mm -hmm. Why do we? You see, God has implanted something within us, and we can be hearing the, the gospel message proclaimed, and uh, we don't just say, you know, I think I'm going to believe that. You know, No, we respond to a call uh, uh, to or an invitation, even however it's presented to us, some of the various strains of Christianity. Um, we, we accept to be baptized because we believe. You mm -hmm. see, the belief is there. And then because of that belief or because of that faith, we respond one way or another, depending on what the situation is. But let's look at Romans 10, 17, where Paul instructs us that, and he says, consequently, trust or faith comes or arises from out of hearing. Yet hearing comes, uh, yet the hearing comes uh, from Christ's utterance. So this is how the word of faith came to be in our mouths and our hearts. I'm referring back to Romans 10, 18. Uh, I'm sorry, Romans 10, 8. And why we then become able to speak the same declaration in our mouth. And I would say <clears throat> there's two ways of translating uh, the rest of that verse. One of them is that we make a, a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that conjunction 
that hoti in the Greek can also be because, and I'm leaning more and more towards understanding it that we confess because of white of what Christ did, um, and then because since we uh, since Jesus Christ is Lord is another way of trans since is another way of translating that um, conjunction there. Since Jesus Christ is, is Lord, we can trust in union with our heart Be, uh, because God raised uh, and aroused him, awakened him forth from out of the midst of dead folks. So that is, is Romans 10, verse 9. We can read it either way. Either is a legitimate way. The, the normal common translation that we confess that it's kind of a confessional way of coming to Christ in in certain ways. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that's fine. But we can only really confess that because Jesus Christ is Lord, because of the Christ event. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, we receive further light on this subject in, in Hebrews 4, verse 12. And I'll quote here. You see, it follows that the word of God is living or alive and active or working, operative, energetic, productive, and more cutting above every two-edged sword, even passing through as far as dividing of soul and spirit and joints and marrows, you know, able to sift and separate within us. Think of that. It's able to, that's one of the words for judging is to sift and to separate, discern. But it is doing that within us concerning thoughts or ponderings, reasonings, reflections, anything that's going on within us, and the intentions of our heart. So this is what the power of the word of God that comes, and faith comes to us by hearing that word proclaimed. That is why it is necessary. That is why, well, how will they believe except somebody go out and proclaim it? Uh, Paul says back there in Romans. Uh, in looking over this, uh, I, I like a note that Linda gave. She said, when we speak the word, the word is active, is the active force that does the work in the heart of the hearer. I like that. You need to see that. It's excellent because, you know, in the beginning was the word. The word is creative. The word comes into us. And now it's true. There might not be a response I'm thinking back of the, the, the different types of soil in Jesus' uh, parable of, mm -hmm. of the, the soils. Maybe there is too much um, overgrowth or something, and it doesn't respond. But as far as the good soil, the seed is there, and the seed does all the work. It just comes into the soil, and mm -hmm. there is. And in some places, it came up. And it was choked out by competition or there wasn't a good situation. But all of that comes to the seed coming to us. Now, I suggest that we choose to respond because we believe. The choice is dependent on, upon the fact that we have been given faith through the word that was spoken to us when someone shares the gospel with us. The response is like the first breath of a baby or its first cry after having been born, it breathes and cries because it is alive. Uh, the life came first, even in the womb. 
Using the example of hearing the word proclaimed in an evangelistic service that are good things, when the preacher ends by inviting the folks to walk down the aisle to receive Christ and be saved, if somebody responds to the invitation, it's because the word of the gospel was believed. They don't choose to believe. They just believe once the belief and the faith is within them because it is active and alive and operative through the word that came into their hearing, then they respond. They either walk down the aisle or they go down and say the sinner's prayer or they decide to be baptized or whatever the particular formula might be. So our acceptance <clears throat> of the gift of Christ is a result of our having been caused to believe by the living and productive logos that has been sent into our hearts. The newborn child of God breathes and begins to nurse because it has been born. Back to Abraham, or Abram at the time, Abram heard the word of God, which brought trust and faith into him. And then he obeyed God's instructions and left his father and kin. The faithfulness caused by the belief that was imparted to him by hearing the word of Yah from Yahweh in Romans 10, 17 reference was put on his account as him living in the way pointed out or as being righteous as some. So that's well, I appreciate, first, yeah, first well, I appreciate, I appreciate that what you're, what you're trying to communicate there is that, there's always this prior action that yes. is that is at work and that can be that can be confusing i know even when i began my own christian journey there was uh, a long time in which i thought well that i had made the decision to do this yes. at a certain point in time but then the more reflective i became about it i realized that there had been something that was at work in me yes and at the point that I sort of crossed the line that I became conscious that I had made this decision, I credited the decision to myself. Yeah. Um, and I just wasn't perceptive enough to understand everything that had been going on in, in the background in that moment. And so I think what I have come to see is it's, it's not so much that we have to believe, but that we will believe. Yeah. And, and when we believe and when that faith arises in us, we don't, or we shouldn't, I don't think, give that any more credit than I give credit for the life that ar ar arose in me that results to me being here. Uh, yes. It was, a, it's all this gift that has been, um, been given. I was, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about, well, in the Armenian scheme, imagine two persons. Um, who both hear about Jesus, person A, in, in, in the Armenian scheme, person A ends up in forever heaven, and person B ends up in forever hell. And then I thought, well, does God in Arminianism equally want both to be saved? Well, the answer is yes. Did God in Arminianism give each one the same amount of grace? Well, the answer would be yes. It seems then that if the Arminian wants to claim person A is forever saved by grace alone, then the Arminian would also have to accept that person B is forever lost by grace alone as well. So Arminianism forces us to conclude that there is something going on 
beyond what grace can guarantee, which is finally decisive with regard to salvation. So I'm just logically forced to conclude that in the Arminian scheme, getting every bit of God's grace does not mean one will eventually be saved. Therefore, in Arminianism, salvation is by grace apart rather than grace alone, as in grace is only a part of salvation. In Arminianism, there's the grace part, and then there's the other part, the non-grace part. And if the grace part and the non-grace part add up, then you get to salvation. Otherwise, you come up short forever. And God knows all about this in advance, which I think ultimately subtracts from the goodness of God every bit as much as Calvinism does. Arminian theologians want to claim salvation by grace alone, but it seems like theological sleight of hand to claim grace alone saves when you pretty clearly are on the hook to add something beyond what grace can guarantee in order to actually be saved. And I just want to clear up something here because some people have questioned me about this. I've been accused of saying that people don't have to have faith to be saved. Well, obviously, I believe faith is necessary for salvation, but the choice to have faith is given and guaranteed and empowered and driven by grace or or driven by the, the word. So, yes, there are things we must do to come into union with God, such as repenting and having faith. Um, I don't believe that I am saved or that anyone is saved by anything other than grace alone, however, which powers and precedes faith and everything else necessary for a final and ultimate union with God. All right, then, let's move on to the, the discussion to talk about this actual Greek word, which gets translated as grace. Uh, and it's a it's kind of a common word in the Greek, and it has a big history, and it gets used in certain ways in the New Testament. So the word itself uh, leaves us a lot of room for discussion and debate. So the Greek word is charis, which we translate into English as favor and gift and grace. So are we loading too much into the Greek word charis if we understand that theologically God's gift of grace to us in Christ includes Uh, working in us to make us capable of and predisposed towards receiving the gift of salvation, as well as ensuring that all things necessary for our salvation, including even our ability to come to faith, uh, will ultimately uh, be able to be accomplished by the power of grace. Good, good question, uh, David. And um, in in theological discussions, there can be, a lot of different um, conclusions arrived according to the lens through which we are viewing the scripture. Um, the, the Greek word charis is a cognate of the word kara, and kara means joy. Uh, the New Testament scholar Jim Coram has defined grace as, quote, an act producing happiness or joy which is granted as a favor. This act is gratuitous in nature. It is a favor that has been given to us by um, God acting upon us and within us. It's basically the, the, um, the action. Grace here is the action of God because it is a giving it is, it is something, it is not just a gift that's set on the table that you have to pick up. It is, it, it comes, it's tied to the, uh, the faith that 
enables us to uh, come alive and gives us life within it. So you can uh, say it's it. You can that way. You could say it's an active rather than a passive gift. Yes, yes, I believe it is, and it's not just something that's out there like the the, the theological concept of prevenient grace that oh it's just something here it's there. It is in a sense of because it's a part of God and God is everywhere and he's there available for us. But in as far as us coming to life, being born again, or being um, existentially saved into the kingdom of God is it's something that is active upon us. I like Linda made a note on, on my notes here. She said, grace is the net which captures us and drags us to Christ. I say, yes, that's, yeah. that is what happens. Um, in Ephesians 2.8, Paul instructs us that, uh, that grace is the instrument where he says, by grace, by which we have been saved. And here he uses a perfect participle, meaning it has happened to us, and we're folks having been rescued, so that now we exist being saved. Uh, next point is grace, like Linda had said above, that um, is like the net that drags the fish to Christ. Uh, recall Jesus said, if I be lifted up, the common translation says, I will draw all men unto me. But the word draw there means to draw like a soldier would draw his sword out of the sheath. It's action upon something that causes it to come. Yeah, that's also, the, when, I remember when I learned that, that's, I think the Greek word there is helkuo. And the yes. idea there is it's a pulling or a dragging. I'm being drawn right. uh, forcefully and powerfully. And like, uh, yes. that was helpful. Yeah, or it, and literally it does mean like drag. We mm -hmm. don't think of, you don't hear very much in evangelical preaching about God's going to drag you to himself. But that's what he said he would do if he was lifted up. And we know that was the cross. So at some point, each, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, each in our own order or in our time class or whatever, however you want to translate that word order, uh, we will be dra dragged into Christ and uh, be made alive in him. And that certainly doesn't leave, leave us very much to brag about, does it? No, there's... <laughs> This, this is, these pictures do not show any sense of choice on our own. We are dragged. You know, we are, uh, you know, a perfect example is, is the conversion of Paul on the road uh, to Damascus. Wow, God, God just took him down to the ground, blinded him, and, and, and totally changed him. He didn't decide, well, you know what? I think these Christians are right. I'm going to stop persecuting them. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a, uh, a believer in Jesus. No, yeah, the action totally by God upon him, and he had to say, "Who are you, Lord?" You know, or even right. he, it, he wasn't. He didn't sit down and 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 deliberate about this for a long time. No, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. So, um, like I, I just referenced John twelve thirty two. Uh, it's grace that will drag us to Him because he was lifted up, and when we lift him up to others in, in preaching the gospel of Christ crucified. Um, 
Grace is the work of the Spirit which imparts life into us, making us alive together in and joined us in common life with Christ so that we are then enabled to respond to God. And we can reference that is, is Ephesians 2.5. He said, we have been made alive. You know, in, in Ephesians 2.1, we were dead. There's no one who is dead in the sense of, and we know that's speaking metaphorically, spiritually. He says, when we were dead, and then in verse 5, he said, he made us alive in Christ. So uh, grace is also, I would say, the sphere of God, which upon entering into us via his word, causes us to be born again. Grace is the action of the Logos inseminating us with his seed. And there I would refer to 1 Peter uh, 1.23. Uh, <clears throat> Through means of a living and, and dwelling word, which is God. Uh, I translate that. Uh, it could be the word of God. I translate that as the, uh, uh, the de more of a definition. Uh, and... It is, is not through our response. Our response is caused by the life of the word that has come into us. And another, another thought I'll just bring in here. In Genesis, if we take Adam, Paul used the first Adam and referring to Christ as the last Adam or the second humanity. If we go back to the first one, how did Adam that was formed of the dust or the moist soil, how did he become a living soil, a, a living soul? Mm -hmm. God breathed in him the breath of life, and he became. So it was God breathing into Adam, the first Adam, and it's it's the second Adam or the last Adam uh, breathing into us that that gives us gives us life. So grace is the power which releases us from the slavery of sin. It is the action upon us that sets us free. And there I reference Galatians 5.1, you know, for freedom you have been set free. The action comes upon us. We have been set, set free. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, you know, it, it tells us that we have been uh uh, okay, I'm drawing a, 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 <laughs> a blank here. Uh, we have been reconciled to God. I'll let you edit that. We have been reconciled to God, and that has other meanings as well. So grace is God in action. As Linda says, it takes us all the way to salvation, which is union with Christ. And the last point I wanted to make, that grace is the Christ event, which bought us and made us to be his temple. We can look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. We did not choose to be bought. We did not choose to become a part of his temple where he would dwell. All of this is the action of Christ. Even once believed, we don't do this. It is the action of life within us, that the seed within the soil causes 
the, it sends its roots into the soil, which is us, the Adam man, and that seed of Christ, where we come to where oh, it's, we realize it's no longer I that live, but Christ within me, as Paul said. And this, so I like, I like that. I like that that um, that grace is God in action. That it yeah. is that it is an an active gift. It's not just something that's kind of inert, like a rock yeah. sitting there, and we decide whether or not we're going to pick up this rock. Right. No, it's uh, it's an it's an active, all encompassing kind of thing. I, I, in my uh, looking into all of this, I discovered that in the ancient world, that acaris could have just been a large gift from a wealthy benefactor to the general population from which the giver expected to receive honor and loyalty in return. But what I'm thinking about as Chorus is used in this way is that the Chorus is, is a gift of grace that is given, is given to all of humanity, which makes a way, which makes the possibility for us to be saved. It means that God is our ultimate loving parent taking us all the way to salvation as a child already bearing the imago dei, the image of God, and therefore an inalienable orientation towards ultimate fulfillment into union with God. So God in grace isn't making me into something that I'm not. God is awakening in me that which I already am. So the charis of God or the gift of God or the favor of God is the active grace of God towards all humanity it's the favor of a perfectly loving parent towards a dear child whom God deems to be priceless and will do anything to preserve and to rescue. So the charis or the gift or the favor of the grace of God is much more than the largesse of an ancient nobleman who deigns to give a noteworthy gift to the masses or a monarch who gives a moment of recognition to a commoner. I see that the charis of God, the grace of God, is an all-encompassing gift from God to humanity of a perfecting love which entails within it every help and blessing we humans require in order to ultimately mature in this life and beyond this life if necessary, finally into union with God. I, I like that. Very well put. All right, well, let's move on to our third question to ruminate upon. Okay. Okay, I understand why Arminian theologians don't want to say that they reject salvation by grace alone because it introduces a kind of legalistic transactional element, which to me subtracts from salvation by grace alone. But how can we disagree in a charitable way with Arminians, um, but still uh, say that they really don't affirm salvation by grace alone? And we also want to maintain our position that God's gift in Christ is an effective and universal accomplishment of salvation through grace alone. So how, how do you think we accomplish this? Well, Christ is the effective Savior, not the potential Savior. One who does not save the world, that is, the aggregate of humanity, is not the Savior of the aggregate of, huma of humanity or the world. The savior of the aggregate of humanity or the world is only really the one who actually saves, rescues, uh, uh, gives life to, restores health to, heals, 
the aggregate of humanity. Uh, diluting Christ as being only the potential Savior dilutes the whole gospel and the work of Christ. I like another note that Linda put in here in this at this point. She brought up the um, the parable of, of the woman hiding the yeast in the, in the um, measure of, of dough. Uh, the yeast is put in the dough. The yeast causes the dough to rise. The yeast yeah, is exactly. like the grace and the faith, the action of all, the love of God, the whole, the whole nine yards you, you might say of God Himself being put into us. That and the the dough is just there. It's it's the dough doesn't rise without that. It it's something that is inserted and causes to rise up and become that. I'll keep that answer short. <laughs> okay. Well, I was thinking about this that Armenian theology as I see it, it's kind of fundamentally a failed effort to maintain a loving picture of God in the face of the cruel God of Calvinism, who effectively yeah. predestines some to save and some not to save, and who is perfectly within his rights to not extend the hope of salvation to any at all. I, mean, I think when they were really first going through this debates about Calvinism and Arminianism, that the God of Calvinism uh, they thought, well, the God of Calvinism doesn't doesn't owe grace to anybody. That the, the God of Calvinism could completely let humanity in total descend into eternal torment, and it's yeah. only and it's um, and that grace and that God even decides to save any of us. We should be we should be thankful for. It. And people saw, well, that's really a harsh picture of God. Certainly God is better than that. Certainly God loves us all and wants to save right. us all. So so they were trying to figure out how can we, in a sense, rescue our picture of God. But in my mind, kind of what they did was they went from the theological uh, frying pan into the fire. They, <laughs> they in, I agree. In, in the effort to solve one problem, they ended up um, creating another one. And so I don't think that moving from Calvinism to Arminianism really ends up solving anything because Arminians present God as wanting to save all, but then making a creation in which God knows all will not obviously be saved, which introduces a strong note of incoherence into God's own personality. Yes. Um, saying people saying that people damn themselves eternally freely, I think does little to shield God morally in a creation where God is the first cause of everything, and God knows in advance that the offer of salvation will certainly be, quote, freely, unquote, rejected. So what is the gift of grace other than a curse if God gives it only as a precursor to damning people forever for failing to make a decision God knew they would never make in the first place? Yes. So I can understand, and, and this happened to me too, when I was exposed to Calvinism, I thought, well, that's, that's not good. And so then I, I had a kind of Arminian faith and the, you know, and I, I was basically came to the point where I was saying, well, God can save everybody that's savable, but perhaps there are some people that aren't savable. And I think what I was really trying to do was maintain a good picture of God in my mind somehow. But then what I had done was I had introduced some bit of legalism or some bit of something that was completely on my own that I had done. Yeah. And I didn't really mean to do it. It just kind of, 
it just kind of happened. And it was, it was hard and embarrassing for me to admit at age 50 that I had done this. <laughs> and so I thought, well, you know, it's, it's never, never too late to correct. And it's an understandable, it's a very yeah. understandable thing, especially yeah. in our society, which is so oriented around free will and free choice and liberty and all those types of things. It just kind of makes sense to us that, that salvation is something that we might choose. And it's kind of hard to wrap our heads around the idea that no, that God made a prior decision for all of us. Uh, but once I finally got to that, I, it just came clear to me that, that Calvinism and Arminianism, both in their own way, create fundamental problems for a picture of God. You know, Calvinism holds on to the idea of grace alone, but it ends up um, having other problems. Ar Arminianism holds on to the idea that God extends grace to all, but then introduces other problems. So it's, um, it's a tricky, entering into the world of theology is a very uh, tricky, and, and uh, you, can, you can introduce implications in your theology very easily and subtly, even when you don't realize that you're doing yeah. it. Yeah, so true. And, and the, that's the problem is that theolo theology is often introduced um, new things, like just where I, my first response was that, well, Ar Arminians say you've got to do something. But that's not what, you don't find that in the scripture, in, in the teachings of, of grace in, in, the new, in the new covenant. It's all God doing, doing something. The, the old covenant was where you had to do something. It was a bilateral covenant. And, uh, you know, I'll do this, God says, if you do that. And if you don't, then. Say that was that was the the it, it served its purpose, but in regard to where we are in Christ, we don't want to bring those elements into it, or we. Yeah, that, that's you know that's complicated. I think that's complicated too. On the one hand, we don't want to portray Judaism as if it's only some kind of legalistic faith, because there is this element of God's choosing these people and bringing them. Uh, bringing them to himself through, through God's own choice. And then, then the, the, the laws and all those things were then ways of them acting that out. Um, so on the one hand, I don't want to make Judaism seem like it's just some kind of legalistic religion. On the other hand, um, it, there was this early tension and it has existed throughout, the, I think throughout the history of Christianity to try to understand the relationship between law and grace. And, um, so I can certainly understand that this is a difficult thing to sort out cleanly. It, it is. And what I was saying is just comparing the two kinds of covenants and, and Paul, you know, uh, especially in, in, um, Romans four and Galatians and so forth, he, he skips over the law and goes all the way back to Abraham. And we, we don't, we should not make this a, a race oriented question, especially since in, in, in uh, Ephesians 2, we're instructed that he's made of the two, Jew and Gentile, as one new humanity. And that's what we're talking about. But it's, you know, in, uh, in uh, the Gospel of John, it says that the law came uh, through Moses. And Moses there is a symbol of the whole law, uh, often used that way. But grace came through Jesus 
Jesus Christ. So it's like there is a difference, a continuity, but a difference. It's a different stage. It's a new age. It's it's a new new thing going. But yeah, I like that. A content a, a continuity and a difference. I like yeah, the way that exactly. you're. Yeah. I like the way that you're putting that. All right, let's let's move on. I found a quote from Roger Olson, who's a prominent Armenian theologian. I thought we'd read this to try to be fair um, and then give our response to it. Uh, Roger Olson writes, All real Armenians have always confessed that justification is a gift of God's grace that cannot be merited or earned. They also have always declared that the grace of justification is received only by faith and that faith is not a good work. At the heart of Arminianism is a denial that faith is the efficacious or meritorious cause of justification. It is always only the instrumental cause of justification. So I think that quote kind of gets at the heart of, of kind of how an Arminian theologian would, would want to uh, express themselves. But, but how do you, how does this statement come across to you? Well, as 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 I read this statement that that you had said to me, uh, I would say, well, I, I would agree if they stop right there and do not add theological assumptions that are based upon their own reasonings. Um, it's we read where Paul says by faith meaning the instrument, by faith we are saved. Um, but the, um, the grace implicit, uh, the grace implants the faith in our hearts, and the grace is the result of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to his Father's will. Uh, which will is that all would be saved, as Paul instructs us. So, it's um, a lot of, I think you and I both agree, a lot of what the Armenians believe, we believe too. It's just that they've added this one thing there because they don't want to, they feel they would slide into universalism, you know. And, and if, if, uh, if this were the case that, well, uh, but we're just saying God has his time and his place for all. And it is through faith and it's through grace and all. So that we agree with them. But the actual existential um, event that gives life and birth to us is something that is entirely God. And until we are alive in Christ, we cannot, we cannot uh, bear his fruit. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is faith, hope, love. What well, you've got to be planted in the vine to bear the fruit of the vine. I'm connecting Paul with Jesus in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. You have to be birthed out of the vine in order to produce fruit. And part of that fruit is faith, according to Paul, the fruit of the Spirit. This uh, I go back to my father's application of the vine where it says, the branch draws the sap up through transpiration from the roots through the through the vine into the branch and produces fruit. That's that's something that happens upon it, and it just 
grows out of the, the fact that, but it's first, that branch is alive in the vine before it can produce fruit. And faith is part of the fruit that is to be produced. Well, as I was thinking about it, I, I just thought that the Armenian theologian says, kind of as I see it, well, God does everything. All you have to do is accept it. Yeah. And to me, to me, this feels a little bit like a theological sleight of hand, like when a magician does something really quickly like, and you don't notice it. Yeah. And it so is our action in this in this way of thinking, our, our action may be only instrumental, but without our action, which takes place beyond what grace can guarantee, we are lost forever. So the Arminian looks at the human decision and basically says, as I see, well, nothing to see here, folks, just an instrumental response to grace alone, which saves. And I think that's kind of a neat trick. But that little vanishing instrumental response is the only thing that can finally save you. And no, no matter how much Arminian theology tries to minimize it, I think it is still very stubbornly there. Yes. And that purely instrumental free will decision, which you have to finally make on your own might be easy enough to make under the perfect circumstances, but it becomes mighty difficult to nearly impossible to make the merely instrumental instrumental decision for faith. When the theological deck is stacked against you in a hundred ways, it reminds me of a, a podcast episode I did with a, a person named Rebecca who had gone uh, to a conservative Bible college and then went on kind of a short term uh, ministry trip uh, to a part of the world where it was like 99 point, it was like 99% uh, a Hindu and Islamic. And as she was talking about her faith that people were listening to it, but she could tell that it was just so far out of their frame, frame of reference and it was so, it, it, it was, it was just, it would have been a million times harder for them to receive it than as she, as she grew up around it. And so she just came back from that trip very, um, very discouraged. So in her experience, then that, that little decision, that thing that only we, that little part that we only have to do when she saw that in another context became huge and enormous and extremely difficult for these um, people to do. So, and if that decision is something that finally um, God was just going to leave them with and was not going to rescue them, if they in this life weren't able to do that in that context, that finally just broke her down. And it, it, and it, and she almost kind of lost her faith over that whole, um, that whole experience. So I think it's, that we shouldn't minute that we shouldn't when 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 Armenian theologians try to say oh well the the response to faith is just merely instrumental it's not meritorious it's it's it 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 I think it underestimates how difficult it is for some people when they are presented the gospel in this way that 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 the decision then becomes enormous and um, and almost um, an almost overwhelming type of thing, which which is why I just appreciate the idea that the good news that we can tell people is that that God has extended a grace and a mercy to us in Christ, and that even though it may not make sense to us now, we may not be able to understand it now. That there is the power of the Word, the power of grace, the power of the Holy Spirit that's in the world at work right now, and you might 
you might be feeling it right now. And if you are feeling it, then that's a time to act on it. But we are confident that this work is at work in us and in the world, even though we might not be experiencing it and getting it on the surface level yet. Yes. Yeah, that's good, David. Well, a big, this is our fifth question here. A big challenge for Arminian theology is that it seeks to give all the credit to God for salvation while leaving humans with the final say in whether or not they actually will be saved. Through provenient grace, God makes a libertarian free will choice possible, but this raises the question of from what mysterious origin does the decision for salvation then emerge? Our Arminian theologian Roger Olson has admitted that, um, quote, one thing I wrestle with about Arminianism is the mystery of free will. I don't know how it works. There does seem to be an element of uncaused effect in it, unquote. About this problem of uncaused effect in the human decision for salvation, one Calvinist critic of Arminianism writes, quote, if free will of the Arminian variety is going to be responsible for making the choice, and this will is neutralized by provenient grace, then there is nothing compelling you, be it character, upbringing, disposition, the Holy Spirit, genetics, etc., to make any decision whatsoever. Who you are, the primary factor behind every choice is taken away. There is no you to make the choice. It is arbitrary. It does not solve the loving relationship problem to say that God is pleased to have a relationship based upon the arbitrary decisions of people. Therefore, in order to hold the doctrine of provenient grace, one is left with either perpetual indecisiveness or an arbitrary choice, neither of which solves any problems, unquote. So, uh, Jonathan, what are your thoughts on the problem of uncaused effect within Arminian theology? Well, as I understand him, I would say Olson's element of uncaused effect is exactly where Armenian theology falls short of the mark. <clears throat> God is the cause of the effect. We must first be set free. That John eight thirty six, whom the Son sets free, is free indeed, in order to have free will. Otherwise, our will, I mean, this is something Luther wrote about in, in his book, The Bondage of the Will. Um, we must first be liberated from the slavery of sin in order to become a slave of Jesus Christ, as Paul referred to himself in Romans 1, verse 1. We must first be given life before we, as we've said, I've been saying time and again here, before we can give any response to Christ. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I myself come so that they can continuously have and possess life. Now, if we look at the Old, Parad Old Testament uh, paradigm uh, or pattern type, when Moses challenged Israel, to, and we hear this repeated a lot, and he said at Sinai, he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. The context of that story in which we should look back at was that Israel had just been delivered from slavery as a pattern for us to look at. We have to first be delivered from slavery in order to choose, are we going to serve Pharaoh or are we going to choose uh, to serve Yahweh? So uh, once they had been been set free from, um, from slavery, they were free to choose. 
Now, the new covenant involves God making us a new creation. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If someone is in Christ, he is a new creation, or it can be read, uh, if anyone's in Christ, there is a new creation. The old things have passed away. So we're in a new creation, just as the Sinai event made Israel was kind of a creation of Israel as a people, as a nation. Prior to that, they were just the tribes of the sons of Jacob. Mm -hmm. Because of God's indicative in Christ of what he did, those who are made alive in Christ aren't able to, by the power of the Spirit within them, keep Christ's words and the imperatives given by Paul, that we should, how we should live. Life and freedom must come first. I have I put down a list of some things that are necessary to show what the and some will be a uh, saying again what we already said what uh, to address the element of what Olson considers the uh, uncaused effect. Um, <clears throat> notice how God causes us to be saved when He says we are dragged to Christ as fish in a net and the fish do not decide their fate. Uh, we are born again by the will of God, John 1.13, an action that is totally the work of the parent, from conception to birth. We are freed from slavery, slavery to the carnal minding of the old man, and then we are given the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is a free mind that is, is alive and free to, to make the the choices that God wants us to make. We are given the Holy Spirit of God just as the first Adam was breathed into by God. We have been given, I'm sorry, we have been raised from the dead and seated with Christ, citing Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. God is the one who shines forth from within the dark, the midst of our hearts with a view to illumination of of the intimate and experiential knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, quoting 2 Corinthians 4, 6b. And this is analogous to the creation where God commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, as he as Paul went on to say in the, um, or, or had previously said in the first part of that verse. So <clears throat> again, God made us alive in Christ as we as we read in Ephesians 2:5. The mystery of unregenerate human free will is the freedom of the dead to remain in their graves, the freedom of the fish to swim until the net catches them, the freedom of the slave to perform the work of his slave until he is set free the freedom of a living nat natural life until God gives birth into the spiritual life of Christ. Everything that is involved in being saved or rescued from our inner prisons is the work of God within us. Philippians 2.13 instructs us that it is God who works in us both to will and to do. That's those two verbs, both to will and to do his good pleasure. 
It is God that causes us to choose him and to be joined to him. We have no part in our deliverance or our being saved or our being given life. Notice that all of these are in the passive voice of the verb, which scholars indicate when you see the passive voice, it's God doing the work. That means it's God working on us and in us, enabling us to receive him. So it is God, one after another, placing us into Christ, who is the way. That's well, my I, response to Olson. Yeah. Well, I appreciate Olson, uh, you know, admitting that there yeah. is this problem that yeah. as an Arminian, he must, you know, he must deal with. And he's basically just saying that anybody that enters into the theological ring <laughs> ends up with, you know, with problems that they have to work through or difficulties that we have to work through as, as the position that we take as a universal restoration. We have to deal with passages which seem to contravene that or say that there will be some final ultimate separation. So everybody has something difficult to deal with. And, but I do think that, that, that Olson is correct when he locates uh, this issue of uncaused effect as being um, a difficulty that Arminian theology has to, has to face. <clears throat> and I think that by positing the crux of salvation in our hands, we then must generate the decision to accept Christ from somewhere else besides God's influence in our life. We are, in this, in the Arminian scheme, we are ushered by grace only into a state of libertarian free will in which half of us wants to come to Jesus and half of us doesn't. In the Arminian understanding, the Holy Spirit brings us only so far, but then leaves us alone to do the rest. Uh, and in this sense, we are perfectly indifferent. <clears throat> we could just as easily choose for salvation as to not choose for it. To use the old cartoonish picture, the devil on the one shoulder is just as powerful as the angel on the other shoulder. I heard one person put it this way, God cast a vote for us and the devil cast a vote against us, and then the deciding vote is left to be cast by us. But from where does this decision to cast this all-deciding vote emerge? Thin air. I see this as another theological magic trick that Arminian theology performs. It pushes the decision for salvation back upon a person who is only aided by grace to a state of libertarian neutrality from which they must produce out of nothing a decision upon which everything hinges. Both the forever residents of heaven and the forever residents of hell in this system are finally there forever because of a mysterious decision which came out of nowhere although it was also foreknown, foreknown by God. Under this, under this system, just as in Calvinism, we might as well just eternally divide humanity into lucky and unlucky. And I don't understand how such a resolution to creation could be satisfying for anyone, particularly God. All of this then ends up uh, subtracting from God's perfect goodness, especially when you add God's foreknowledge into the, in, into the picture. Uh, it all works together to create just as harsh a picture of God as does Calvinism as I see it. So I, I want to be as generous as I can because I really think that Armenian theology is trying as hard as it can to produce a good picture of God. Um, but I think it still ends up 
introducing difficulties and problems into our picture of God. And I think however much they don't want to admit it, it has this problem of uncaused effect and throwing this decision back onto us out of um, who knows where it actually comes. And then that sort of introduces this kind of randomness into everybody's response. Well said, David. Well said. Thank you. Well, I thought now we would just, uh, those were kind of the formal questions. And I just uh, just wanted to ask you if there's any other uh, further points of discussion you'd like to add to this conversation that just kind of came to mind as you were preparing for this. Well, rather than basing my um, decisions on matters like this on a tradition or a theology uh, in in my in my writings I try to let the scripture uh, be the thing that leads us uh, to the truth through the the work of the spirit through his word uh, in John 3:16 we're told that God loves the aggregate uh, the aggregate of humanity now compare that with 1 Corinthians 13.8, where Paul says his love never fails. So his love will be active. Um, Romans 3 came to mind, in, and I, I, I think it's too long here to, to read the whole thing through unless you feel it would be good. Um, in starting, you know, with verse 21. Well, say, I'll just say, I'll just say that this Romans 3 passage, starting with verse 21, just became really important to me when I first realized that the, really the best translation of it seems to be that we're, we're not saved by faith in Christ as much as we are saved by the faith of Christ when you look, when you yes. look at it. And so if you could just kind of uh, maybe point our listeners to this passage and, and how that how that can become kind of an important uh, interpretive yeah. moment. Well, if we'll just pick up on, they can read, you know, we're apart from law, we're, I'll, I'll just say, uh, justified using the common translations. Um, um, it, the, ju- the justice of God, uh, the dikaiosene of God has been manifested in rain, it remains displayed in clear light as we view Christ. Then in verse 22, here's a, a controversial verse, and it's how you uh, render that verse. Um, I use, uh, I, I, I like Douglas Campbell's definition of, of dikaiosene or righteousness as eschatological Deliverance. It's the act of God coming into humanity through Jesus Christ that saves and delivers us. So I'll, I'll yeah, and it. I like that dikaiosune, you know, just to, to make things right, to justify yeah. in the sense of lining things up, getting them back in order, straightening yeah, them out, yeah. yes, straightening yeah. things out. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, right would, would say um, uh, re- writing, writing things. But, yes. Um, Making things in the British, they have a saying, uh, right in the, in the, in Great Britain, they have the frame right-wising things. Right-wising or, yeah. and right-wising simply means to be turned in the right direction. And that is Christ. We're turned into the way pointed out. Um, the, uh, the DK family of words came from the Sanskrit 
which was, it meant originally to point. And then it came, DK meant to be, came to mean the way pointed out. That, that could be the traditions, the laws, and so forth. And um, so that's where, where Jesus says, I'm the way pointed out, as opposed to what, and he would often say, you've heard it said, but he, he was bringing us into a whole new realm. So I'll just read this through here, uh, if the listeners will bear with my expanded translation. Yet an eschatological deliverance of God and a right-wise condition affected by God and God's righteousness through means of Jesus Christ's faithfulness or trust faith, which is Jesus Christ, um, unto and into the midst of all humanity. The, the all there is, is, is um, masculine in, and it signifies humanity as well as, or even as also, upon those presently believing. For you see, there's no distinction. What God did in Christ, the Christ event, delivered all of humanity, but not all have come into life in it, like Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Every, as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all will be made alive, but each one in their own order, or their time, their sequence. And that, you know, people are still being born. So um, so then he goes on to say, um, you see all people at one point veered off the mark uh, or sinned and deviated. And so they are continually posterior to or left behind, falling short, being inferior to and wanting of God's glory. While being folks presently and progressively being made upright, freed from guilt, placed in solidarity within the way pointed out, uh, freely by his grace. And the word grace there is, is in the, um, the dative. It can be by instrumental, can be locative, locative in his favor, or it can be associative with his grace through means of the process of a release from an enslaved condition and a liberating away from imprisonment, which is resident within Christ Jesus, whom God publicly places uh, before as a sheltering, cleansing, covering. Literally, the word, the word there in the Septuagint meant the lid of the ark, the mercy seat. And it equals, it normally rendered as the act of atonement. Can, but, can, I, just, let me, can I just say something right there that... Yes. Whenever I was trying to, in my book, I was trying to come up with a picture of God that I thought I could find in the Bible, that a picture of God uh, in which grace goes to all and grace alone saves. And so yes. I got to the, the, you know, that God is a loving parent to all. That's first. And second is God is the one who sincerely desires the salvation of all. And then I got to the third one and I was trying to look for a word as to how I could describe what it is that God has done for humanity. And the word that just kept coming to me was cover. Yes. That, that somehow in Christ, God has provided this perfect covering. And then I looked at Romans chapter five. And so it seemed like there had, in, in, in the way Paul put it together, there, there had been this covering of sin and death put over humanity. And then Christ comes along 
in 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 an act of grace transcends that covering with righteousness and life so that where sin abounded grace abounded all the more and so we were covered in a negative way and then we were covered in a positive yes. way and yeah. all of that just happened to us we were sort of the passive recipients of of all of that so i really like this idea that that my faith whatever it is is resting in the completed faith of christ that i'm i'm not saved by my faith i'm so That's much right. as i'm saved by the faith of christ and my imperfect faith That's is right. growing is growing and resting in his perfect faith and then when you put this before the uh sheltering and covering um and the and the the atonement and the mercy seat and all th and all of that i think that all works together very nicely yes in the, the hebrew word for atonement I forget the particular word, but it was first used in the story of Noah and the ark. And it says that he put pitch covering the outside of the ark so that it would be, it would float and the water wouldn't get in. That was the first place that that word was used. And the, the whole thing is you see the act of God. A study of the day of atonement too is like, the Day of the Atonement was not anything individual. It was to take the whole sins of the whole of that society away through uh, through the, the blood on the mercy seat and then the scapegoat that wasn't killed, taking the sin out. The sin was placed on of all of Israel on the hands of, of the goat, and it was taken out into the wilderness away from the camp. It was a symbol of God taking away the sins of the world. If I can just insert something here, it also, this calls to mind to me the, the story in, the, uh, in, the, in the, the garden story where they, are, they realize that they're naked and they try to cover themselves, but they can't really do it. They're just yeah, scrabbling. It, they're just covered them. Right. So they can't cover themselves. Right. So God, so God gives them this covering, That's and then, right. and then the story in the prodigal son, where the prodigal son is coming home, and he's got all this shame, and he's bearing, and he's rehearsing what he's going to say say to his father, but his father comes running out to him before he can even get out his speech about you know, what, yes. what terrible things he's done. The father throws this robe over him, covers his sin Absolutely. and his shame Absolutely. and doesn't just, doesn't just throw the robe over him, puts sandals on his feet and then puts a ring on his finger, you know, yes. just completely covers. Completely. The, yeah. And so there's something about that, that, that covering that of the, of the father, to me, that picture of the father and the prodigal son covering the, the fallen son is sort of, to me, the aggregate of humanity in Christ, yeah. God, co God covering us. Ab absolutely. And, and therefore we get John writing, love covers a multitude of sins. Covering. Yeah, there's that covering yeah. thing. And, and a picture of this was even of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 16. He found her in her blood and he throws his garment over her. He covers mm. her. So you see these these types, these pictures showing, pointing to the work of Christ within us. Well, moving on from that, uh, I want to point to the obedience of Christ. 
if we won't read it, but if you if you look at at uh, I call it Paul's gospel in in Romans five twelve through twenty one, it's the disobedience of the first Adam uh, brought death that spread into all, and upon that most translations miss translate that it's it's the uh, it's uh, upon which situation death all people sin but then you get the whole thing that in that in the one the discipline uh, uh, the disobedience of the one the many and you need that definite definite article it means the whole group you know were made sinners and so forth but the through the obedience of the one christ the many were made righteous you know so seeing all of this as this is the big picture we start up you start out with and it, it's it's it can be seen all the way through god working upon and within people uh in romans eleven thirty two, you have you have the beautiful verse where he says the um he locked up all into um disobedience so that he could have mercy upon all and it's just once again, it's all the work of Christ upon, and all there is, doesn't leave anybody out, all. And then in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, um, one of my faithful favorite verses, it says, for, for out of the midst of him, and through the midst of him, and into the midst of him are all things, the whole, everything came out of God. He is our source. Everything went through him. Everything returns back into him. Uh, we have uh, verses like Colossians uh, 1.15. And I'll, I'll briefly read a couple verses there. There's a, um, um, verses 22 to start with. I'll pull it up here. Colossians 115, I'm just reading King James here to help people follow through. Who is, speaking of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature or all creation. He's the firstborn of them. For by him were all things created. See, we're getting into Paul's language of um, the metaphor of create literal but also the metaphor of creation um, uh, things that are in heaven and in the earth that are in the earth visible and invisible whether thrones and so forth uh, all things were created by him and for him and and he is 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 the uh, before all things, and by him all things consist. The inclusiveness of, of this in Paul, and then uh, in 311, uh, also in Colossians, um, whether there is where being in, well, I'll re read verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all in all. That's the new creation. 
Um, moving on to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, this is beautiful, fine, ideal, as well as welcoming, welcomingly and acceptably received from the presence of and in the sight of God, our Deliverer, who is constantly willing, constantly willing, or that could be rendered continuously intending and purposing all human beings to be saved and to come into a full, accurate, experiential, and intimate knowledge and insight of truth. And in verse 4, for God is one and one mediator and so forth. And in verse 6 says, the one giving himself a corresponding ransom over the situation of and on behalf of and for all. Um, I'm, I've got other verses. I don't want to just, just be reading them on through. But um, Hebrews 8, 11 through 12, Romans 11, uh, 22 through 32, and James uh, 2, 13b, where mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, but I will read here 1 John 2, verse 2. And he himself beings ex exists, continuously being a cleansing, sheltering cover around all our mistakes and errors, sheltering us from the effects, from their effects so that we can be in peaceful and right wise relationships. And then it ends, yet not only around those pertaining to us, but further, even around the whole ordered system and aggregate of humanity or the world. Once again, I, I've listed more verses in Ephesians 4, 2, Romans 6, but I don't want to drag this out with people just... Um, I'll just give the reference. People can look them up. Ephesians 4, 6, and 7. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Um, Romans 6, where uh, our old man, or the first Adam, was crucified with Christ. 13, we are to live as those who are alive from the dead or uh, raised from our previous state of being. In Romans 6, 18 and 22, it says, we were made made free from sin. And in verse 20, we were slaves, not free from sin. So there's so much scripture that speaks of the action of God, the salvation, the completeness of the work of Christ that each of us will come into, but each in our own order and each when the seed of God is made alive within us. I'll, I'll stop with one illustration from that I learned from when I was trained in forestry in college at one point. There's a, uh, a species of kind, pine called the lodgepole pine. Uh, you find that a lot in, in Yellowstone. Um, it's the uh, cones of, of, that bear the seed of the lodgepole pine are so strong that to get regeneration, there has to be a fire. It takes a fire to open up those cones to where the seeds can come out and then be germinated. That's an amazing, that's an amazing analogy. 
It's it's an amazing analogy. We have to sometimes, it's like the Lord said, we must all be salted with fire, you know, in one of the gospels, I forget the reference on hand. When you realize this, that there is so much that God does to and for humanity, what he brings them through. But the ultimate thing is he saves all. That's his will. That's his desire. And no will that is in bondage or restricted, which the unregenerate will is, they cannot choose because they, they're, not, they're not rational. They don't have the mind of Christ. They're not, they're not the, uh, uh, the completed human being that Christ is, is the paradigm and example of. And uh, anyhow. Oh, well, um, I, I think those are, you know, uh, this is such, this is such a huge topic that you yeah. it just uh, extends almost everywhere. Yes. Um, uh, but I was just thinking that, that uh, I, I read somebody uh, somewhere that pointed out that in the Old Testament, that if you create a dangerous situation, then you must make it right. Uh, yes. If something or someone is hurt. So if you dig a pit, and you don't cover it, and someone else's ox or donkey falls in and dies, then you must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. That's Exodus twenty-one thirty-three to thirty-four. Yeah. Or if you or if you build a roof without a parapet and someone falls off, then you bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house. That's Deuteronomy twenty-two eight. Yeah. So, if God knows the end from the beginning, as Isaiah forty-six ten says, and God knows that the Holy Spirit powered gift of liber of libertarian free will will ultimately just result in many uh, falling into a bottomless pit or sliding off never to be found again, then God, according to the Bible, as I read it, has incurred debt and blood guilt. So if God truly wants all to be saved, and if God loves each one of us like a good parent loves a dear child, and if God is sovereign with regard to the outcome of human destiny, then uh, when you look at the giant big picture of everything, I think that we can say along with Julian of Norwich that in the end, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Yeah. As, I, as I see it, God put us in a difficult but illuminating position, knowing full well in advance that we would all need to be rescued. Yes, God illuminates us and saves us and brings us home by coming uh, to rescue us in Christ. God in Christ has won a tremendously costly and overwhelmingly great victory over the power and sin of death for all humanity. This victory over sin and death is the essence of the good news, the gospel, the announcement of the reigning power of God, which we can receive by grace now, and which we will, I believe, ultimately all receive by grace in the coming ages if we don't receive it now. And what does God get out of all of this? Well, what God gets out of it in the end is a is an enormously large family of humbled and enlightened children who are able to exist in and share in perfect love and light together. So in conclusion, I would say that in Arminian that Arminian theology has some good impulses which I affirm. But to me, it finally fails to describe a God who is purely good and who finally heals and glorifies equally every fallen, sinful human being. Arminian theology, for all of its good intentions, I believe, diminishes the power of grace to save alone, and it also ends up diminishing God's sovereignty by making God unable to bring about a creation that reflects God's own perfect goodness. 
So if God really and truly wants all to be saved, then why is God not able to do something God expressly wants to do? Why would God be defeated in God's own will to save all? Isn't the one, isn't God the one uh, no one is able to withstand? Second Chronicles 26, is not God able to do whatever God pleases? Psalm 115.3, isn't it the purpose of God rather than the plans of human minds that will be established? Proverbs 19.21, isn't it the case that no purpose of God may be thwarted? Job 42.2 and Isaiah 14.24. Isn't God the one who declares the end from the beginning? Isaiah 46.10. Isn't God the one for whom nothing is too hard and for whom all things are possible? Jeremiah 32.27 and Matthew 19.26. Isn't God the one who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will? Ephesians 1.11. And then just to add to this just a few scriptures that I was wanting to highlight. First uh, Timothy 1, 13 to 14 in the NIV, Paul writes, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I think that's put very well. And oh, it then, is. It's excellent. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And then this, um, this Ephesians uh, uh, passage, Ephesians 2.8, and I might want to ask you a little more about this. It's, it says, So, um, for you see, by the grace and joyous favor of God, you were folks having been delivered, so as to now be enjoying salvation through faithfulness, and even this is not forth from out of you. It is the gift of God. And I just want to ask you about this because it's some passages don't really make that, some translations don't make that really clear, but it is, it's coming, even this is not coming forth out of you. Even this is not erupting out of you. It is the gift of God. It's, and it's not out of, it's not out of works to the end that nobody could boast. So it's it, the work is coming. It's God's work coming out of us. Yes. Um, and um, I, I was wondering if you could just say a little more about that Ephesians 2, 8, that had, had you really worked hard to bring that out in your translation. Yes. I tried to just stay true to the, the basic meanings. Um, um, the prepositions are there. It's like, even this is not forth from out of you folks. What a statement, you know. It is the gift of God. Uh, and I, I rent, give the next thing, the word God, there is is um, the genitive case. So it can be basically the gift of God, or the same spelling is also the ablative, is the gift from God, you know. Uh, or even in apposition, it is the gift which is God. The faith that comes into us through grace is God himself. That faith that saves is, is, is God. And, um, or you could, it can be rendered as a genetic, the gift which pertains to God. And then not out of same preposition as uh, used before, not out of works, nor from the midst of actions or deeds done, or it means it can be uh, paraphrased, not self-produced, or it can be uh, 
not from the law or the old covenant, um, speaking of the works, to the end that no one can boast. So it he, that verse just really lays it out there. It is it is the work of God, you know, um, and and it's the um, perfect tense in in uh, the first part of the verse there. Uh, folks having been delivered, rescued, kept safe, made whole, restored to your original state and being. Those are all different def, uh, uses of the word uh, verb to be saved. So as to now be enjoying salvation. That's the effect of the perfect tense of the verb. The action happened in the past, and that action, the Christ event, continues on effective on through the present time. My father used to describe the perfect tense as that uh, the house has been built, and now it continues as a built house, a completed house. And that's the work of Christ here. Um, now, there's some manuscripts add uh, salvation true. They add uh, the word the faithfulness, and that could, can be the faithfulness of Christ as we see it, or the loyalty, faith, and even this not from yourselves. So the this not from yourselves refers right back to that faith. The faith is not, or the faithfulness, the loyalty, any of those ways you transfer, translate the word pistis there, it's not from out of you. That has to come into you, you know. That comes into you once going back to what we read earlier in Romans. Faith comes by hearing. And, you know, consider how Jesus let him who hath an ear hear. Not everyone is ready to receive the word uh, uh, that is spoken. And, and same same way with the different kinds of grounds. Uh, the trampled on lives that are just with a path and they're just hard, the seed won't go into it and the birds eat it, take it away. Or the, the, the lives that have hard things have happened to them, the seed goes in, but it can't take root. There are different aspects of this that shows that this is something the sower sows the seed and the, 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 the field according to how God has prepared it because you don't find just good ground most anywhere that it hasn't been work. If it is good ground, it's full of weeds that the rains brew up or brambles, and you've got to burn it off. And Hebrews 6, you know, that field that, that was producing so much good stuff, but but then it overgrown with weeds and brambles, its end, its destiny has to be burned. Well, you don't throw the field away if it's good soil. You burn it off and replant it. And this is the work of God within us. He doesn't, and that just shows he's constantly there. He's 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 working this over and over. But I'm getting out to other things, well, <laughs> which is easy well, to do. I, yeah. Well, I for one plan on absolutely doing no boasting when it yeah. comes to my place and God's plan to ultimately be all in all. I'm just a grateful recipient of a grace that's larger than I can possibly imagine. And I think that I have just awakened um, to it. And it took me a long time to even understand just how all pervasive the grace was. And um, so I can completely understand why it would take somebody a while uh, to get to this point of view. It certainly took me a while 
to get to this point of view. Yes. And, and and it was funny because some of the reading that I had to do that I that helped me to get there was from Calvinist writers. Yeah. And so it's interesting to me how in my theological journey, some of the most important things that I've learned or been helped with are come from theologians who are not coming to the same ultimate conclusion that I come to. So, you know, you, 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 you can be surprised, surprising what you can learn. You can learn from all kinds, you know, all different kinds of theology. And I guess I would just say that to everybody that's in this theological ring, you know, having this debate that theology is hard. It's, it's difficult. There's so many different scriptures and passages and things to think about. And so I have sympathy with anybody who's trying to really seriously uh, do the work of theological education or theological uh, growth and study. And I have, I have learned, benefited uh, a great deal from people on the Armenian side of things. And I have learned and benefited a great deal from people on the Calvinist uh, side of things. And so for me, what I'm really doing in, in a lot of ways is just taking to me the best out of the Armenian tradition and the best out of the Calvinist tradition and kind of saying, or when you put this together, it really harkens and takes us back to the, some of the early figures in the, in our tradition, like Gregory of Nyssa, who, you know, existed in a time before there were all the theological controversies. And it seems like he was able to see pretty clearly that, 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 that there's this enormous grace which is sweeping us all up. And I was just thinking that I might let uh, David Bentley Hart have the last word here. He, he, he wrote a book, and one of his latest books is called uh, You Are Gods on Nature and Supernature. And about the book, he says, on the question of grace and nature, these pages advance an Eastern Christian view over against a particular set of Western Christian traditions. Indeed, if there is one thing on which all the great Orthodox theologians of the last century were agreed, despite all their differences from one another, it was that the entire problem of grace and nature, which was known to them almost exclusively from Thomas sources, many of them French, was a false dilemma created by an inept reading of Paul and by a catastrophic division into discrete categories of what should never have been divided. There is only charis which is at once that which is freely given, the delight taken in the gift, and the thanksgiving offered up for it, and all those things that a distorted theology converts into oppositions or dialectical, dialectical contraries or saltations, grace and nature, creation and deification, nature and supernature, are in fact only differing vantages upon or continuously varying intensities within a single transcendent act a single imminent mystery. Thank, so, thank you. Thank you, Brother Hart. That was Yeah, beautiful. so David yeah, David Bentley Hart as a way of kind of compressing all of this. Um well uh you know having this discussion about grace, the the, the Greek word charis, um and all the different nuances of all the different Bible verses that we have considered. I just want to thank you for um Jonathan, for your ongoing engagement, I like the way that you do your your uh, that you present your uh, your work to the world. You say, "Well, I'm just you know I'm I'm a person who has enjoyed uh, translating the Greek New Testament my whole life, and I am just sharing 
you know, not the last word on all of this, but you know, what I have come to see and you put it out there in a very humble way, you know, encouraging other people to do their own work, to, to do their own thinking as well. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's, it's been a joy and just the, the happiest time of my uh, working life is working on the texts and, and learning and learning from so many other scholars, you know, as, as far as any work that I have done, the uh, it's it. Yeah. It's just a joy and I'm still learning. I continue listening and, and reading and yeah. also continue doing little tweaks on my translation. <laughs> well, there's one thing that's exciting to me is, um, you know, as I get a little bit older, um, I'm 62 now. How old are you? Uh, I'm 80. Okay. So you're 80. 80 and a half. I tell my kids I'm counting every <laughs> half like kids do. Yeah. But you know, I think one of the things that kind of can scare people about aging is you can think, well, life will get boring. There won't be anything for me to look forward to anymore. And I have found that I just don't get tired of thinking about grace, reflecting upon the goodness of God, finding all these beautiful, encouraging passages in the Bible, and then, you know, working through the different um, challenges of putting together theology and engaging with people from throughout the history of the tradition and modern scholars today. There's so much good uh, scholarship out there. So many interesting yeah. things that are, that are oh, that yeah. people are thinking about. And so to me, you know, it's, it's like, you know, we're in the midst of one of the greatest explosions of of the theological and biblical studies and reflection upon the you know last 2000 years of Christian history. So to me, this is an extraordinarily exciting time to, get, to be alive. And we have all of these incredible resources. I mean, you know, it, you know, 30, 40 years ago, in order to get to these resources, you might have to have access to a theological library in a seminary somewhere. But now all of these resources are, you know, are, are available. People can, easily, you know, get into an interlinear Greek, English, uh, New Testament and start. It's just all the resources are there. And I would just say for anybody that's wanting to get further into the, um, what the different, the, the, the interesting possibilities that we can get for translation out of the Greek New Testament to look up Jonathan's work, because you have done your own translation of the New Testament, but you've also done a number of commentaries, which go even further and one of the things I like about your commentaries is it's not just what you have to say about it. You also provide lots of quotes from other scholars and yeah. give their points of view. So it's kind of like when you write your commentaries, we're sort of getting to go along with you as you make your own best judgments, but you also include the things that you have read from other scholars that have gone into your thinking as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we're all, we're all one body joined to one another and, each cell in the body receives from all the body. And that's, that's where it's just, it's beautiful. And it's just a blessing, the grace of the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that this, we, we, we've talked some about the leaven that's working its way through. Yeah. And I, I, and I do sense that there is a dissatisfaction. People call it deconstruction, but I think it's kind of a dissatisfaction that, that, that people know that somehow the God that they believe in is better than the theology that they've been given. 
And so they're dissatisfied and there's this hungering and a desire to get to a something that matches up with what they're feeling in inside about who God really is. And so I just think that efforts like this and conversations like this are, are happening um, all over the place. And, um, and we're not trying to corner the market on these <laughs> conversations. Yeah, we're just, yeah, we're just enjoying having the conversation. And to me, I just spent, you know, the last two hours with you just kind of relishing this amazing grace that, yeah. that is enlivening us and bringing us forward. And just once I got this idea, just I've get, it continually makes me feel grateful and hopeful, you know, every day, because I don't think Oh, ultimately it, this is all depending on me and my ability. No, that, that this is all God and God's ability in each one of our lives and God doing this tremendous work and bringing something far more beautiful yes. out of all of this than we could possibly ever imagine. And, and when you look around at the world and there's so much strife and despair and hopeless and evil and all these types of things, you can see, well, how can this be going it? How can this creation be going anywhere? Good. Yeah. But, if yeah. you can, in the back of your mind, if you can just be holding on to, wait a second, we're in a, we're, what if, what if this is, there's a grace that's working through all of this, like, like leaven and it's sort of hidden, but it's doing its work, even when we can't maybe see it in other people. And even when we don't understand it in ourselves, but it's still always at work and it will gradually work its way through everything and everything will finally come to reflect the, the, the perfect beauty and glory of God. And we will all see this together that, I mean, that helps me <laughs> to yeah. feel good about oh, being yeah. alive. And it, and it's something that makes me want to share, um, my Christian, my Christian faith with other people. And I can say my, my understanding of the Christian faith is probably when I talk to people, I say it's probably far more optimistic than anything you've heard, but yeah, it absolutely. is not outside. It is not outside of the history of the Christian tradition. And, I think that there are scriptures that I can look to that form uh, a, a very strong um, uh, foundation for it. And if this is something that seems exciting to you, uh, I'd like to introduce you to the world where people are thinking about this and having conversations about this. And in, and in my world, where people are having these conversations, you are a very welcome and fun and interesting voice that's just bringing a lot of good scholarship and a lot of good reflection. And so I just want to say how much I appreciate uh, your work and everything that you're doing and for uh, having this conversation with me. Yeah. Oh, it's very kind, David. I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm, I'm at times faltering at remembering certain things, but um, it is it's such a joy, but I thank you for, for your honoring words and, I would like to say back, I so appreciate the ministry that you have and your, your gifting in getting this out, getting these conversations out to some of us who have been off in a corner, you know, uh, threshing, threshing our, our, our wheat at night or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and then just putting it out. Uh, anybody wants bread, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the Lord's work. And in, in such things, endeavors of such as you're doing, you enable us to come together and then you're enabling others who the Lord draws 
to listen to your podcast in, in such a beautiful way. So thank you very well, much. A, well, you're welcome. It's a beautiful, humbling and fun thing to be a part of. And I want, I appreciate you spending a couple of hours of your time with us to have this discussion on, and I anticipate this won't be the last time that we talk. So until the next time, yeah, until the next time that we talk. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.